Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And I have Rich Mulholland on the show today, all the way from South Africa. You guys are going to like this dude, so hang tight. And we are back. Let me bring Rich on to the show. Rich, welcome to the show. Ken, thanks so much for having me. We have an audio problem now. Nothing's changed there, on my side. There you go. I, I saw, it hey. was, you're back. There you are. So, <laughs> hey, it is great to see you, man. Um, and I got to I gotta tell everybody up front, I accused you of having a fake background like I do. <laughs> And it's not fake. No, no, it's my board game collection. I'm an avid board gamer. The reason I think people like to uh, meet on video conference with me is that if you meet on video, I can't force you to play a board game. But if I meet you in person <laughs> at any given time for a lunch anywhere in the world, I will have a game with me and I will make you play. Wow. you Those are all 100% board games. Oh yeah, hundred percent. There's, uh, uh, I have about a thousand five hundred of them, which now my wife has put a hard stop on. If I have one more in, there's got to be one more out. So that's the rule. So if I if I buy new ones, I have to decide which one I want to cull and get rid of. <laughs> wow. So so, Rich, we were talking a little bit um, prior to the show starting. I you know I. I created this show about two and a half years ago, um, and it was literally to help people have a breakthrough in life, to help them get unstuck. And I think we've all been there, you know. We've we've been, we've all gotten stuck right there or wherever, and 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 you know, it's th- that's what this show's about. So why don't we start with with you telling everybody where you were born and raised? Yes, I was born in Glasgow, Scotland. I was. Uh... Uh, raised there. And in fact, kind of a a bit of an unstuck story is maybe a personal overshare, but I'll go with that. And my parents moved to South Africa because it was either that or get divorced. So they were uh, at a point in their marriage where they thought like, this is just not going anywhere. We had a very British upbringing. My dad would go to the pub every day after work and he was traveling with work a bit. And he came to South Africa. He got offered a job. He was visiting family. And they decided they were either going to end it or they were going to uh, make a move and, and unstick themselves. And they just celebrated their 51st wedding anniversary. And so sometimes you've got to do something pretty extreme. And in fact, for me personally, that was the recent COVID crisis. It ended up being the kick in the ass I needed to get out of the the automated averageness of my business and to get excited with it again. So I think we all need to get unstuck quite often. And Yeah. Yeah. So how, how old were you? When when you moved to South Africa, I was nine, and I turned forty six in two days. So wow! Well, happy yeah. early birthday! Thanks, man. Appreciate it. So, what I mean was that that had to have been a pretty big, like culture shock. I would uh, imagine Scotland to South yeah, so, Africa. That seems like a big yeah, so, shock. 
It, it is a big, I mean, lesser so than you would perhaps in some some ways think that, but uh, all of a sudden it was a culture shock in that it wasn't raining every day. It wasn't gray every day. I had a swimming pool uh, that we could play in, you know, so there was a lot of things about our life that was was better. And in fact, there was a lot of, I went to school with a lot of other British kids and South African kids, you know, it was like, uh, was less of a shock. And I think when you're nine years old, everything is easy. Uh, people worry a lot about changing their kids' school and moving things. Everything, I, I believe that one of the, the my unfair advantages was that I moved schools quite often as a kid and I got used to dealing with new people and new things and new environments. And that has put me in a really, really good position uh, throughout the rest of my life. Wow. So, so it wasn't a real big change for you then. Sounds like it was a good change. <laughs> Oh yeah, South Africa is amazing. It's like even when I travel, it's, when I travel, it always ends up being saying to people that you know I I come up to people and I say to them, hey, I live in Cape Town, and somebody will come up to me and say, oh my goodness, I've visited Cape Town. It's the best place I've ever been. We're absolutely wow. spoiled. I was last year speaking in 26 countries on six continents, and I've not yet found a place where uh, matches the lifestyle that we have here. Really? I've oh, got yeah. I've I've, I've got to I've got to come and check it out. Does it get? Does it ever get cold there? Yeah, I mean, it gets to the point where uh, during winter, you'd maybe in the morning when you leave work, I ride motorcycles, so I have to put on a jacket, and obviously I'll wear like, pants and things. But but during the day, when it's even in winter, you can generally uh, at least wear maybe a light shirt or something like that. It's never going to get freezing. We wow. have a couple of days, and everyone gets excited about it, and the snow in the mountains somewhere, and you can go and see it. But you have to drive about three or four hours, and it's about this thin layer of snow yeah wow holly holly says me too road trip <laughs> yeah there you go when you come yeah. home and it's some of the most beautiful road tripping country in the world if you if you get jump onto google and google driving the cape town garden route or the different mountain passes if you're a motorcyclist uh the mountain there's like three or four mountain passes you can ride around uh on, all not too far from where i am it's kind of like the pacific coast highway or the PCH, PCF, uh, the Pacific Coast Freeway type ride environment that we have down here. Wow. Very cool. And I just found out my wife has always wanted to go to South Africa. So Jill, you have to come and visit. Yeah. And play some board games. <laughs> exactly. For, for, yeah, for, anybody, for anyone just joining that bookcase back there, those aren't books. Those are board games. All of them. Yeah. Like and all of those. Oh my gosh. Do they have meetings for that? Sounds like you might have a problem. <laughs> well, actually, generally this time of the year, so a week from now, normally every October, my wife and I go to Germany and we meet 50,000 other board gamers and we all play games together for a week. It's crazy. It's this big what? event called Spiel in Essen and it's canceled this year. So it's the first time in five years that I've not been. But yeah, I absolutely do need a, do need a group uh, for this. It's, a, it's an addiction. Joe, Joe said, so did I. <laughs> Joe, you are absolutely welcome to come and stay with me, provided you're willing to play games. A friend, actually, my business coach said he's coming down. He asked if he could uh, stay here in uh, a couple of weeks. He's coming down from, from Johannesburg. And he said, yeah, what's the cost of that and the use of one of your motorbikes? And I said, dude, you have to play board games with me. He said, well, I'm not sure. Maybe I'll book a hotel. So we'll see. <laughs> That is funny, man. So, so I mean, and what's interesting is, is we're not even here to talk about board games, really. 
<laughs> but here we so, are. Can I say one funny thing though about the board games? That's just because we're on this topic before yeah, we move away from it. Please, it was yeah. crazy. So about two years ago, I log all my games in an app called Board Game Stats. And two years ago, I was looking and I played 994 games in the year. And I was so so upset because I missed it by just six. I was like, ah, oh, if I'd looked, I would have played another six. But this year, I've only played 90 games the whole year. And it was this weird aha moment for me was that in March this year, my business was completely decimated by COVID. Mm. And I had, I had to, to work really, really hard. But what I found was that in the end of the day, I was my brain had been so wired with problem solving that I didn't feel the need to reach for a game. And I've now realized that if I find myself obsessed wanting to play games over and over and over again, it's because my brain needs to be solving problems. And this year, there's been more meaningful problems to solve in my business than there has been in the last 23 years I've had it. And you know, we're now at the point where our business is doing better than it's ever done in its history. But like I'm constantly solving and I found that my passion for board games, I realize now in retrospect, coincided with my business reaching cruising altitude. So I was mm. so bored just going with the day to day management of the company. I didn't need more. We have a lovely house and lifestyle. You know, I don't it's not it wasn't about that. So I wasn't my brain wasn't working in hyperdrive at work anymore. So I was mm. playing games. And from now on, this is going to be the canary in the coal mine. If I find myself constantly reaching for another game at the end of my workday, I realize I've not solved meaningful enough problems at the office. I've not pushed myself further. And this was such a big aha moment for me. Wow. So maybe I need less games. Yeah. Well, we're going we're gonna to talk about your business here in a second for sure. Um, but I, I want to start with um, or go back, I guess, to um, your upbringing. It sounds like you had a great childhood with 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 great parents that are still married that's that's pretty impressive um but did you end up going to like i don't know what they call it there university college what do they call it i i, I don't know higher education yes. so we'd call it college or university uh the, the university college is where you get a diploma university is where you get a degree okay. but i would say 99 no 90 percent of uh, kids, if they can afford it, would normally go that route. Very, very similar. We have a very similar uh, lifestyle, middle-class lifestyle as the average middle-class American person. You know, I live in the suburbs in the housing estate. And, uh, you know, it's so so generally those tend to be the paths. And those were certainly the paths on the way up. The, the, the one thing that was different for me in South Africa is that up until my year, uh, we had compulsory conscription. So you were supposed to go to the military, do military service for a year. Now, what happened is I was a little bit of a naughty school kid. So in uh, the 10th grade, we're supposed to fill out a form that says whether, you know, what you want to do and what the interests are in the military. And it was illegal not to fill it out. And oh. myself and my best mate didn't bother. And by the time that we got to 12th grade, the military service was canceled. And only the kids who filled out that form got called up. So I was the first year ever to not have to go to military and do my military service. So I kind of missed that. That was a, or at least compulsory military service. And I went straight out and uh, actually became a rock and roll roadie. So I didn't, I didn't uh, tour. I didn't uh, go to university. What I did is I set out and I started touring with bands. It started because a band called Depeche Mode came to South Africa and I oh really my wanted God. to go and see them. My wife, yeah. that's her favorite band. That's my one of my wife's favorite bands is Depeche Mode. Sorry, I interrupted. You. No, 
So like Jill, I wanted to see them. And I, I, my dad knew some people in the rock and roll industry. He was a broadcast guy. And I said to him, Dad, and the words, these are the absolute words I said. I said, Dad, I will lick the stage clean for nothing. Just give me a job. I will be a stagehand. And both wow. my dad and my sister are in, are in sound. And so my dad took me and we walked into Standard Bank Arena and it was the day of the load-in. And my dad said, do you want to go work in sound like, you know, Siobhan and I? And I said, well, actually, you know, I'd like to do something different. And the week before I'd been to an OMD concert and they had these amazing moving lights. I said, what about lighting? He said, cool, I'll introduce you to the lighting team. He took me over, he introduced me and I started off as a stagehand and I fell in love with lighting instantly. So that was the beginning of a journey. It was supposed to be a one day thing. Uh, then the next band that came to South Africa was uh, AHA, the band AHA, I don't know if any of you remember them. So I said, can I do that? And then Brian Adams came out from Canada. And there, what wow. I did is I, 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 you only ever got hired onto one section of the gig if you were a stagehand. So I said to the uh, the truck driver that I would give him my entire fee I earned being a stagehand if he would let me sneak in his truck and go from city to city. So I was working for nothing. I ended up getting a second job selling merchandising. And so I was the first stagehand in South African context to actually do a full tour. And so I toured around with Brian Adams. What and is kind the, of uh, not not to not to throw you off, but what is OMD? <laughs> OMD is a band called Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. They have, oh. if you search for uh, quite a famous song of theirs, was a song called Joan of Arc. It's in the same kind of feel of uh, Depeche Mode, that kind of space. They were like an 80s band that was still just kind of going in the 90s. So I finished school in 92. This would have been 93, 94. They toured in South Africa. Wow. But yeah, somebody, what? Listeners will have heard of or know of some of OMD's songs. In fact, and if you haven't, it's a gift for you because they're an incredible band worth listening to if you like some of the oldies. My wife. See, my, taste. Jill, my, I actually wish like, Jill, please, you should, next time it'll be you and I, all right? And then Ken get up on the comments on this. Yeah. Jill, get down here and interview this guy. <laughs> I don't we know just the talk language. <laughs> that is awesome wow so I, I know depeche mode I, I i've never heard of omd that's crazy and you're so, brian adams i'm sure oh yeah yeah, Def yeah. leopards there we go yeah, I, I, I saw Def leopard in concert yep yep they were amazing so um and that was after the drummer lost his arm that that was that was even crazier I've got his drumstick over there. His name is Rick Allen. I played football yeah. against him. He was the goalkeeper. Now, th there's a story for you. <laughs> wow. Wow. My, uh. my, wife, my wife said, that works for me. We can just play music. <laughs> yeah. Except for it'll get shut down because Facebook doesn't like that when you do that. So yeah, now uh, although Jill, now I'm a punk rock guy, so all the music I play now myself uh, personally is all a punk rock. I've I've evolved into uh, a young a fighter in my old age <laughs> she's a punk rocker too from from her college days so 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 you um so wow so now you were a roadie just in south africa though you you didn't try did you travel the world with any of these bands or no, so this was a pivot point. This was actually what led to me. This was the decision that led to me not uh, uh, starting my own business. So what had happened is I was asked to join a company called Spotco, which was an international lighting firm to jump on uh, a world tour that my assistant ended up joining and he toured with uh, Modern Talking. At the time, I'd met uh, a girl and I, the realization was if I was to leave, 
uh, and go on a tour, that would be the end of the relationship. And there was two moments that made me realize that this was not going to be what I wanted. The first was that I knew that I didn't want my life just to be touring and traveling with bands. I wanted to grow and I wanted to go into the office side of things. And the second insight was that I didn't want to, to break up. So I went to my boss um, and I think there's an important insight here. If you don't mind me going back one step, when, when they offered me a job to start moving from a stagehand to a, uh, to join the company as a, a full-time employee, I'd originally said to him, no. And I said, the problem is I don't want to be a technician. I want to be in sales. So I would rather come into your business and work on the business side of things. So that was always my passion. So could I come get involved in the business way of running, running gigs and doing things? And my boss is just, just incredible entrepreneur. His name is Offer Lapid. And he said, Habibi, he said, nobody will ever work in my company in the office unless they know what it's like to work on the road. So if you're willing to give me two years on the road, I will then bring you into the office. And two years to the day later, I was the lighting designer of the Smirnoff International Fashion Awards. And I went in and I said, Offer, you said to me two years. He said, Habibi, you're wasting your talent. I said, I don't care. I know I've got more in me and I know my passion is going to be uh, inside the office and to his credit he said what do you want to do he said I'm not sure yet I said I'm not sure yet but I'll figure it out he said cool you can just go and sit in the boardroom and start doing stuff until you figure out what you need to do and he carried on paying me in the three weeks it took me to work out what I wanted to do for him uh, I went on to start a, cor a corporate division which I can explain in a second if you like wow so I thought you were gonna I thought you were gonna say so the moral of the story is all dreams are crushed by meeting a girl <laughs> I mean, the, that's the moral of all stories. <laughs> Jill, is gonna, Jill, is, Jill is going to cut us off. Okay, <laughs> remember, you have to go back upstairs after this call. So you got to be careful. I'm a continent away. I'm safe. Okay, because Jasmine hasn't watched this yet, so <laughs> so we're okay. That's so funny. No, I'm playing. So, so you um. <clears throat> Okay, so keep going, man. What so what happened from there? Okay, so here's the thing. So one of the biggest frustrations, I always think entrepreneurs were driven by hate. People say that that line, I always joke with people, they say that Confucius was it, uh, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. That's absolute rubbish, right? If I did what I loved, I'd own a board game shop or I'd be a pizza delivery guy because I love board games and motorcycles, right? So yeah. that's not what it's about. I always think that entrepreneurs, we do what we hate. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. incredible. <laughs> We, we look at things in the world and we, we either fix problems or we fill gaps. And so what happened was touring in South Africa, we didn't have work in winter. So Gearhouse, the firm that I worked for, was the largest single supplier of staging gear on the planet at the time outside of the band U2. But in winter in South Africa, we didn't have any work. And the reason was South Africans don't go to concerts if it's cold, if the weather's not great which is crazy because I'm from Scotland. If you didn't go to a concert when the weather's not great, there would never be any concerts ever. So I went to my boss and I said, you know what, we've got all this gear. Why don't we go to the conference market and we'll, I'll try and sell these CEOs and I'll tell them I'll turn you into rock stars. You know, I have the lighting and sound at your conferences and they were like, yes. And you've all been to one of those shows where they, they kind of walk out into the audience and the lights go out and the screen comes on, and the music's playing and they're running and they're like, yes, look at me. Yeah. And they get onto the stage and then they deliver the worst death by PowerPoint. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much. Oh, yeah. financials. And I was sitting in the back. I would have to, to, you know, work in the back in front of house with everybody. And I was thinking, like, it didn't matter. Like, I'm, I'm a cure for the wrong disease. 
If, if it doesn't matter if the lights and sound and AV are good, if the pres presentation site is bad, it's bad. And so I started, I was also, I put up my hand to be the marketing manager of Gearhouse at the time, the Gearhouse South Africa. So I was kind of doing that a little bit. I was 21 years old and I was pushing that and I was like, okay, I'll do this. And I met this guy who could design. So I started doing a little bit of moonlighting saying, well, why don't we start making better presentations for these companies? So I would sell them the staging, do a little bit of this. And within six months, we had five employees and I realized, well, this is, this is maybe a job. Maybe there's something to this. And I went to my boss. I said, look, this is what I'm doing. And I think I've got an opportunity to sell something that's bigger and I'll still do all the work uh, and give it back to Gearhouse. And he was like, cool, do it with my blessing. And off I went and I started Missing Link. I had no idea what I was doing. I was 22 years old. Wow. All I knew is that the world was a two out of 10 when it came to presenting. And I figure I had a, some sense of an idea that could make me a three out of 10. And I realized by just being one step ahead, I could figure out the rest as I went. And, and that was now 22 years ago. And this was, so I, it was improving people's presentations? Yeah, I'm, I'm like a presentation nerd. I'm a PowerPoint guy. Are you <laughs> really? just realizing, well, yes. And essentially what I am is I believe that human attention is the single most wasted resource that we have. Right. You know, as a live stream specialist like you, I'm sure you can appreciate that. The amount of hours of human attention that are paid to you that people don't use well. Right. And I was frustrated. I think that even in business at any given time, we waste audience. We waste time when people are audience. We invite them to bad emails. Uh, we do death by PowerPoint presentations to them. And I figured there had to be a better way. And I started my business not because it was... Uh, because I loved presentations. I started it because I realized that, well, this is, everyone's so bad at it, that they keep on doing it. So I saw an easy opportunity to create a niche or a niche and, and, and to go and take it. And it's something when I work with speakers, where we say to them, like, don't, don't, go, to, go, into, don't go to the areas that everybody loves. There's a hundred people playing there. Uh, find something that people hate, you know, and own that small little space in the world. And so that was that for me. You literally, <clears throat> you you found you carved out a, a a niche because you hated what they were doing. <laughs> that and was Brian, I, I Brian, that's all it is. Brian Tracy talks about like if you wanna if you wanna create a business, find something that exists in the world already and make it better, or create something new. Right? You're Brian muted wrong at all sorry i'm just worried about my noise canceling is my noise canceling kick in or do you hear the dogs i don't hear anything except you then my noise canceling is working fine because the dogs are great cyclists just just ran past with their dog so brian tracy is absolutely right and and that is a thing that we push all the time in fact when i'm like i'm chatting to aspiring speakers i always say to them it's you, people come to us with this idea of this solution uh I want to address Jill's point in a second and explain where I have a slightly differing point of view, but I think it comes down to them making bad presentations. Yeah. Uh, if you give me a second, I'll come to that in a, in a few minutes. But the I find that you've got to you've got to yeah. slay a dragon, right? Rich, so you've, you've, got, you've got you've got Karen Toddy pushing her appointments out just so she can hear you. Karen, that's incredible. Thank you so much. I like I really appreciate your attention. As I said, wow. I know how valuable it is. So that's that's amazing. Wow. So so here's the thing is that a lot of speakers think they've got a, a solution to the to the world out there. You know, that there's an idea that they have that's so important. The problem is that it's not about your solution. Right. When I talk to businesses uh, and we do a lot of sales consulting and these guys come and say, like, this is the features and benefits of our product. 
But if you're selling an ambulance, no one cares about the features and benefits of the ambulance. They're, you know, they don't need the ambulance. So you've got to sell the accident. If you sell the accident, the ambulance sells itself. And so that's what most of us have to do is to have find something that people get frustrated with. And if they don't know they're frustrated with it, make them frustrated. When I work with speakers, I say, you know, the, the champion is in the chair, the sage is on the stage. You're the sage, not the champion. But they have a dragon and you've got to help them defeat the dragon. That's job number two, because job number one is making sure they see it. And I think that's what most people fail to do. They don't understand the problem they're trying to solve in the world. And that, that to me should be the first thing that every single day you wake up and you ask yourself, like, what problem am I trying to solve today for people in my universe? And if you go to your teams and your staff and you ask them, what problem do we solve in the world? And they can't tell you, that's problematic. Yeah, I, I was going to rabbit hole. Say, <laughs> no, I, I love this conversation. So I was getting ready to ask you, what if they don't know what their dragon is? Oh, and invariably they often don't, or what the dragon they're trying to help them. But so the first way to do that, and there's a great guy called Donald uh, Miller, who has this methodology called uh, Story Brand. We have a thing called Story Setter, which is around using story for sales and a methodology there. But uh, Donald Miller, I, I really think that he did a really good job of taking the hero's journey and framing it up from a from a brand point of view. But one of the questions I love that he does. Uh, so much so that I always make sure I reference him when he does it, is what is the cost of somebody not doing business with you? So if somebody cho chooses not to do business with you, what does that look like afterwards? If they go to one of your competitors, if it doesn't matter that much, right? So if they don't go to any of your competitors, then you simply know, you, then you're not selling your business, you're selling your category. So you're selling that you do need a photocopier, right? But basically you're doing the sales job for any of your competitors. If you can sell them on the specific area that differentiates you from them, that's where it matters. You don't want to be in a five-horse five horse race. You want to be in a two-horse race, you versus the best of the other four. And you've got to figure out what that one thing is. What is the corner of the universe you want to own? Now, for us, we go and we sell companies on making their conferences, You know, taking their conferences online, making these conferences good. And we compete against a whole bunch of event companies. And they're selling this big creative idea. Now, we're creative people as well, but they're selling this big creative idea. And we always say to them, but it's not the, 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 cost, the real cost of your event. You don't have a creativity problem. You have a, a, an audience that is an activated problem. And when we try to explain to them that that's the real problem of their conference and the real cost of their conference is what they lose if they don't get their audience to shift. And then we say, well, nobody else is talking to you about that. So you can make a decision. The company who gave you the right idea for the tablecloths and the band in the evening or the company is going to help you shift your audience by just 10%. And that's what, we, what we'd offer to do. So you've got to figure out what is that thing that makes you different. And if it's not something that's uh, different enough, find a category in which it is. If I was competing against other presentation companies, our offering isn't that interesting. But if I'm competing against event companies, our offering is. So we want to own a market in which other people aren't playing or other people that do what we do aren't playing. Wow. So many things are going through my head and not uh, about my own business and, and clients of mine, their businesses like this, this is powerful stuff. So, so what are, what and are, can I, before we lose it, can I jump onto Jill's point quickly about reading the slides? Yes. Let me, let me pull that back up. There it is. So I agree. If I was a presenter and I turned around here, right, and I read to you the whole time my presentation is this, or if I was reading from here, hi, everybody, thank you so much, that would be terrible. You know what frustrates me just as much, though, is if I was presenting to you and I put a quote on a slide and then I carry on talking, 
then what are you are you supposed to read the quote or are you supposed to listen to me or I put a cartoon or a comic and it frustrates me what I think is I believe that speakers should always read their slides they just shouldn't have too much copy on it so let's say for example I brought up this game here and I said this was my slide and I said here's a slide here and you've got the ah uh, sorry that there <laughs> Now, if I just carry on talking, I don't give you a time to read the idea that this says Viceroy Times of Darkness. This is an expansion to the original base game. Now, if I address what is on there, the written content that's on there, and it's not too much, you've now run out of things to do. So there's no point in you paying attention and carrying on reading. So now we have the frame of reference here, but now I can carry on talking to you about the content. This is an amazing base game. It's based on blah, 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 blah. We can go through some of the detail, but I will always, if I put words on a, a screen, I will always read them or preempt them before they come on with the audience so that I can use that as a framing of my point. The most important thing is for me, the words are not the slides. They're the heading of the chapter. So if you imagine a book, you read the heading of the chapter and then the rest of the words is actually the copy of the, of the chapter. That for me right. is the maybe the image. So I might read this, guys, we're going to talk about the peanut butter versus the pill. And that's what it says on the slide. And then I'm going to go into detail. And at the end of that slide, you'll understand why there's a picture of a boxer dog on that image. But before then, it doesn't make sense. So read your slides. Just don't have too much copy on them where you end up reading a book. That's not a slide. That's a document. Yep. I, I totally agree with you. 1000%. Chadwick says, how do you find and choose the people you partner up with to make things happen and cultivate experiences that you value and keep you inspired? So I've always found a way of working with people that I really value. And I tend to then hire people within the hobbies and passions that I have and people who I enjoy spending time with. There is a couple of things that we do to make sure that they're aligned with with what we do. But uh, so many of the early people that I was uh, that I hired that basically built up Missing Link, our entire ethos and the business's culture were people that I met at punk rock shows. They had the same value structure as me. They wanted to, to do the right thing, but they wanted to remain a little bit edgy. They understood uh, the authenticity and how important authenticity was to them and standing out and they wanted to then uh, apply that to our customers. So it was a big part of finding people that um, that I wanted to work with. Now, the unpopular opinion was I built the business that I wanted to work at, not the business that, that I felt was right. I don't think businesses are democracies. I don't think businesses are families. I think businesses are really functional working relationships and I'm going to create an environment where I want to go and work every single day or a way of working that I want to have every single day. And if that resonates with you, you're going to have the best time working with me. And if it doesn't resonate with you, go work somewhere else, right? I want to create people's favorite place to work, whether that is our customers or our, our uh, staff. And if you want to be somebody's favorite something, you have to be willing to be somebody else's worst. Right. So our staff get free tattoos. That's one of the perks. Now, that may be totally against your value system. Then maybe Missing Link is not the company for you. But like uh, Sam, our managing director, she doesn't have tattoos, but she loves the idea of working with a company that lets themselves express themselves like that. That's part of who we are. So, so we try to build my favorite business and then get people who resonate with that version of favorites. And it's a big world out there. There are people who want to work your way of working. For me, that was the only thing. I wanted to make sure I built a place that I wanted to go to work every day, not a place that, that everybody else would want to go to. So I know it's quite unpopular. We're supposed to constantly pull people and ask people, you know, what is it like? What do you want? I just go out there and try and build a place that I would love to be and then find people who have similar ideas.
So you have a tattoo artist on staff? We had used to have a tattoo artist who would work every Thursday. Now we actually, because we've actually, we had offices with a slide and a shooting range and a, and a, uh, like we had a fireman's pole and all kinds of things in a tree house. Uh, we've got rid of all of those now. There's simply no need. And it's, it was a, it was a, it was a success factor of our business that turned out to become a bit of an anchor. It was something that people knew us from, but then we only ever did business with people within a 45 minute radius because they were the only people who could get the office experience. As soon as I realized that we, we wanted to work with companies around the world, I back. So now we simply allow people to submit their, uh, their, you know, when they go to a tattoo artist, they submit their work and we pay for it. It's one of the perks we do. And it sounds silly, but we also, for years, we did our, we, we, we paid for our clients to get tattooed. And we, we worked in the financial services industry. So all of our clients were banks and insurance firms. And I, but I can't tell you how often I would go to a meeting and some guy would be like in his suit and tie. And he'd say, look at this, look at this, and roll up the sleeve. And then there's this, like, the monster hunter thing there on the arm. I was like, wow, dude, I didn't see that coming. And I think you'll forget the company that gives you the branded pen, but you'll never forget the organization that tattoos you. So that became one of our differentiators. I bought a stretch magazine to pick our clients. We put flames down the side of it and and uh, a little flag. So we would fetch our clients and drive them to our office because I wanted them to experience it. So I thought I'd have to show up or drive them there in a stretch limo because we wanted them to feel like rock stars. Wow, dude, that is awesome. And that comes from your roadie days. <laughs> Totally, totally. Marodi, there. And also, I had this, uh, I mentioned Offer Lapita earlier. I don't think I give that guy nearly enough credit. He just built the business he wanted to be in. And for two years, I got to work around and end up being two and a half years, three years. And just realizing that this guy, this guy, and if you excuse the term, his gas tank, his give a shit tank was full, but only for things that mattered to him. And yep. so he would, when it, when it mattered to him, he was absolutely full all the time. And he was, he like, well, he is just so passionate about everything he does. And that was something that I really bought into, but if it didn't matter to him, even if it mattered to you, that was, didn't, that was, he was okay with that. He wanted to build the, his dream business. And I learned that as a, as a value. And that's what I set out to do. So it all came from my rock and roll start. So I love, I love what you, you, you said, you and and Chadwick puts it up here. I want to create an environment in which I want to go and work every single day. You're you're saying like if you're a business owner, you're an entrepreneur. How do I say this? Don't build a business that that is um don't try to build a, a company that is going to cater to every single person like build the culture for what you want and and find your tribe they they'll they'll come to you yes but there's a caveat to that okay if i'm going to build that business i'm never going to be i'm never going to be a billionaire you know that's not that i'm not going to build a you know if i'm creating a space that i want to work in that's not going to be the world's most scalable business model but you've got to decide why you're in business in the first place yeah. i realized a few years ago i'm a member of eo an entrepreneurs organization yeah. and i was constantly comparing my own personal success to the success of other more successful entrepreneurs and i realized this is ridiculous because i have enough i've got an incredible wife two amazing kids my life is phenomenal like i really couldn't be happier my my, my parents and my sisters live walking distance from us i mean i don't know how many people still have that Wow. Right. Like and we all moved cities together. My family is, is super important to me. So I was measuring my success on other people's things and their growth, but I was getting caught up prioritizing other stuff because I hadn't figured out what my enough was. 
So I will say that I'm not sure if you want to build the world's best engineering business, you probably have to build a culture that attracts the world's best engineers. And that may be different, right. maybe, maybe different for you. But I wanted to build a really cool place where I would come and I'd be able to do my best work and, and fulfill what I want to achieve in the world, working with the kind of people I wanted to work with. And that was, that was just what I wanted to do. So I can't tell you what is right for you. I can only tell you what is right for me and what, what, what for the kind of business that I wanted to build. Because I think we have this, this misconstrued relationship with growth. Like we don't have to keep it like, and I do want to go, we're in a big growth stage of my business, which is just insane because we're 23 years old, but COVID has been the best thing that's ever happened to my company. Like it, it destroyed us. We're like Phoenix, but, yep. but you know, while I'm still excited, I want to do that. But if, if I stop, if it's taken away from time I have with, with my wife and my kids and my family, and if, if, if I start, we, we try not to work late and we try not to work weekends for a team. And if, if that all starts changing, then, then we'll, We'll either build a better way of working or we'll, we'll put the brakes on. Wow. You've got to decide why you want to do it. So my philosophy will work for people who aspire to, to have life before work. But if you're going to define yourself, if the book of your life, if you look back one day in the book of your life and you say, like, where is the book of my life exist? And if you say, I wanted to live in the business section, then you're probably going to have to build a different a different book. But I would like to hope that eventually, while I'm an entrepreneur and a business person, if you know, 30 years from now, uh, I 76 kick the bucket and I'm dying, I hopefully the book of my life will hopefully be a bit more like in the philosophy space or something more interesting in business. I want to be defined defined more than the business I have. Wow. That I do you have a microphone handy that you can just like drop on on screen? <laughs> That's <amazing>. <laughs> <laughs> that was. Dude, that that's powerful, and I think I think that's that's huge. People don't don't define that. People do not define. They don't sit down and 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 look at it that way. And I I love that. I'm guilty of it. Can I tell you an aha moment for me in this regard? And it was like this genuine thing. So I meet this dude. He's a photographer. His name is Adrian Stern. S T E I R N. If you Google him, you'll see his work right now. And I'm sitting next to one of Payne. He's this, he's this like ridiculously gorgeous man. Like nobody, nobody should ever be that good looking and sitting next to you, but his like <laughs> muscles and his ripped abs. And you could see, you know, when people have been wearing a shirt like this and you can still see their abs are ripped. So I was like, oh, this guy. <laughs> but we're sitting, we got chatting on the plane and he told me he's a photographer. And I said, oh, what kind of work do you do corporate and things like this? And it turns out he does a whole bunch more. So he shot, he does these like top world portraits. He did the last living portrait of Nelson Mandela. He did Bono. He's done like, top human beings around the world hire this guy, Tony Blair, the British prime minister, to take his portraits. He's one of the Fuji's wildlife photographer of the year. This is the kind of guy. Anyway, one day I'm sitting thinking, this is my life goal. One day this dude is going to take my photograph. And uh, we were actually at lunch a few months later, and I had a hamburger in my mouth. And as I was taking a bite of the burger, he took a photo. And it's this weirdest look. My face is all, uh, all like this. And I thought, this is unfair. This is my Adrian Stern photograph. And I look like this. <laughs> and I thought about it and I thought, okay, I want another shot. I want a button that one day in the future, there's going to be a moment where I can hit this button and I'm going to be in my, this is me, this is it. I'm going to push this button and Adrian Stern is going to pop up out of nowhere and he's going to take that shot. And then I got depressed. I started thinking, holy crap, what if, the, what if my Adrian Stern moment is behind me? And I decided that actually I didn't want it to be. And I thought, 
hey, wait a minute, I'm, I'm like, so I turned 46 on Friday, as I said. So I thought, well, what if that could still be going forward? And I started trying to design what that photograph that would be the cover of the back of my book or the cover of my book of my life would look like. And I'm trying to work towards building a better photo, to build a photo that will be the definition of the life I want to build for myself. And when I started thinking about that, that's when I realized it wasn't going to be me sitting behind a desk. Like that, that would be a personal failure. I wanted to be something more and doing something more impactful. And uh, yeah, so I'm on a journey. I, I'm certainly not there yet, but I'm trying to get more intentional about where I'm getting and defining this book. What would the book of my life look like? And I, it's an exercise I highly suggest you guys sit and take a few moments to think about. Can, can, I, can I interject my thoughts on this? Please. I think, I think he did it. He got it, yeah. man. Your your life's like <laughs> a bite out of a damn hamburger. I mean, it's, it's that's you know what I actually love that an entrepreneur is. It's like, geez, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> and what I like about it as well is that it's I've never thought about it this way, but I like the idea, like. Uh, my life is about authenticity and imperfection. Yeah. Like I, I've got to be comfortable enough with myself. Like it's a, it's a crappy photograph. Maybe it still will be the cover of the book. Maybe it will be the cover of my next book and there's a whole story there. And so, so but I, I really, really love that insight. I think that's, that's spot yeah. on. That's what it is, man. It's about being authentic. I preach that all the time. Like just be authentic. You're going to screw up. And if people don't see you screw up, they're going to think there's something wrong with you. Like, you can't be Very perfect good. all the time. So I love that, dude. Those public speakers that are too rehearsed. Oh, they turn God. audiences off. Hi, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. <laughs> and then I cried. And I said, like, funny. <laughs> like, audiences pick up that. Audiences bullshit detector. And sorry, that's the second time I've used that. But audiences bullshit detector is so finely tuned. They can see straight away when, when you're not being yourself. And imperfections show authenticity. It really does, man. I think your next yeah, book needs to have that photo of you taking a bite out of the hamburger on it. <laughs> okay, that is an. I'm going to add that to my Rome research right now. As soon as we jump off, I'm actually going to add that in there, and I'm going to make sure. And okay, okay, so here's here's the deal. It doesn't have to be the full forward, but I'm coming back to you, and you're going to write. I'm making a note in my Rome right now. When I, when the book is called Less to the Power of More. When I bring that out, you're writing a section on why this is the photograph is is there. And you're I gonna absolutely. Do that I absolutely. Hey, I just got done writing chapters in a couple of other books. I would love to, but here let's. So let's let's talk about. I I, I kind of want to hear about because you deal with with public speakers. Um. I wanna I wanna talk about how. I don't know how did how did COVID how did this whole thing kind of what did it do to your business and and what what were your initial feelings because I know what my initial feelings were um, they were you know fear a lot of fear you know but what what about you what happened when when COVID hit what what happened for you? Okay, so I'm glad you can track my progress because I wrote about it live on LinkedIn. I wrote articles every day. So March 15th, our president created a, a state of disaster and he said yep. he couldn't do public gatherings. So you can't do public gatherings. I own a presentation business. No, no public gatherings means no work. Ma March 16th, our 
revenue went to zero. And, and by lunchtime, my speaking, every speaking tour I had coming up was canceled. I had a, uh, some gigs in Santorini. I had a, a tour of, of India and a whole bunch of other tours. I was actually in uh, Massachusetts as well. I was going to be speaking there, all canceled. And I thought, oh, goodness. The day before, before it even canceled, on the day he announced it, I realized that we had to go to war with a concept. And it wasn't COVID-19. I very early on realized that COVID-19 was a distraction and it had to be taken away from our psyche completely because there was absolutely nothing I could do with it. That wasn't my enemy. My enemy was people canceling their events. So on the day, on March 15th, and if you connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, you'll see the article. On March 15th, I wrote an article that said, don't cancel your events. Okay? Uh, uh, and the first line says, if you cancel your event, I've lost all respect for you. Because why were you holding events in the first place? If you were holding your company conferences just for a meet and greet and just to get drunk at the bar in the evening, well, then lose the facade of the presentations. But if you were actually about trying to move and activate your company and your audience by, by, uh, through the presentations you're giving, then there's, you have no permission to cancel that. And more importantly, do you think your audience needs more or less vocal leadership right now? And if the answer is less, then you're a very different leader to me. What people needed is they needed to look and, and somebody to tell them this will be okay. So the opportunity came out to lead loud. And th so that was the starting point of it. Then we kind of took people on a journey and we realized people have to level up in this regard and upskill. So we started giving away all this content free. I threw an event on the 16th or the 16th. Yeah, I, I said, please come to my webinar. It's called How to Rock a Desktop Conferencing. I will show you how to run a desktop event like a pro and how to be amazing at this thing. I had never done one. I had no idea what I was doing. So we scheduled wow. it for the 25th and I thought, okay, well, I've got two weeks to learn. So that was what, what happened and how we grew by, and I can't remember the exact date, but I think it was by May we reached, um, thank you very much. Uh, my wife just bought me crackers. By, by May, we had uh, reached our revenue uh, as it was. By August, we got to uh, our best revenue in 18 months. And September last month was our best revenue uh, by about $100,000 in 23 years. So we added wow. more to the top. And all new business and, and with you know a lot less overhead. And it was because it forced us to change the way we thought about it. And one of the things, just to go back to your question about the public speaking, was I realized that a lot of my public speaker friends were depressed. Oh, all these stages have been canceled, and this is terrible. I just want to wait for it to be finished, work on my branding. In the meantime, I was like, dude, no, this is ridiculous. There are more stages right now than any other time in human history. Yep. Right? If you always think about how many webinars you went to last year, and then I want you to think about how many webinars you went to this year. Yep. And we've tenfold more. Every one of our clients has gone from having an event a quarter to an event a week. They're running a webinar every week. They're getting thought leaders in. That means there's a time to stand up. And I think the next generation, 10 years ago, it was YouTubers. Thank you, Holly. 10 years ago, it was YouTubers who were making a name for themselves. I yep. believe now it's, it's going to be webinar stars. Right? These webinar stars are going to be the YouTubers of this, this, this generation because People are looking for leaders, for somebody to step up and speak up and lead them out of this. And I can believe that everyone was willing to give let us, let us go off to the races with this and they weren't even joining us in. So we accelerated our speaking program. We thought there's going to be an amazing opportunity to take advantage of this. And that's what we focused on. We took away, we, we, we took a website down straight away. We originally only had three products on it, three products that we felt were relevant to problems we were solving right there. And that was all we would sell. 
then we added on a fourth product and that's it. Our website basically has four things. I think before COVID, we had like 30 uh, product sets. Now we have four. Wow. And uh, that we sold and it just escalated our business. This is the best thing that's ever happened to us. And I love my business again. I feel like a teenager in love. Wow. <laughs> wow. So I would ahead. also only think, don't trust me too much. Okay. But it's like, I'm a little bit dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you completely pivoted, you shifted, whatever the word is. There's so many words flying around. Um, <clears throat> my buddy, Jeffrey, what's that? Well, it, was a, it, was, it wasn't a pivot. It was a tiniest, tiniest step. So everything we all, people trusted us for, we didn't like change that. We just said, what problem does what the world already trusts us for solve now? And so they already trusted us for presentation and communication. They just didn't have a live event problem. So all we did is shifted ever so slightly and took advantage of that. Yeah. It was an atomic adjacency. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, like my, my, I'm, I'm friends with Grant Cardone and, and he's doing that right now with the, he's doing like what Tony Robbins did with the huge virtual screens. Grant's doing that. My buddy Ray Higdon just did that in his network marketing training, um, and and I and and they're you're right they're they're live events but they're on Zoom and 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 whatever other platforms they're using. So, um, so didn't you just write a book recently? I've written three books. So the most recent one is just Story Setter, which is a short little ebook you can read in like, I don't know, it's like 40 pages. You can read it very quickly. I stopped wow. writing because I said what I wanted to say in it. One of my yeah. frustrations with business books is that uh, the burden of brevity falls on the reader and yeah. not the writer, the author. So I, I like sometimes struggle and think, you know, I've got the joke after the first two or three chapters. Why, why, why am I still, why am I right. still reading? Yep. Yeah, my, but my first two books, Legacides, uh, it's L-E-G-A-C-I-D-E. -E, you can see it on .com or whatever or on Amazon. That book was about a different idea. So I own a company called 21 Tanks, which was an innovation consultancy. And I realized that uh, for an established organization, innovation isn't about starting doing something new. It's about stopping doing something old. And our legacy thinking and success holds us back. So that was that. And then my second book was called Boredom Slayer, which was a public speaker's guide to presenting like a pro. I wanted to share some of the ideas I had as a public speaker and how I could hopefully make you better. And you'll see, uh, <laughs> people always ask me, did you get somebody to help writing it? And said, well, uh, read the book and you will see that it absolutely uh, uh, feels like going out for a coffee with me. I, I wrote all the words. I, I bought him say I wrote 100% on the speaking tour uh, from Lunch Spot. So every day I went to a different Lunch Spot and wrote a different section of it. Wow, that's powerful. Hold that book up again, the one you just showed, the 40-page book. Story seller, story seller. Yes. Is it on Amazon? I uh, know this is a free free book. Go to storyseller.co.za.za or whatever, and you can just download that one. I'm thinking of maybe writing. I think there's, it's 40 pages. I think it would probably be 80 pages. And um, since I wrote it, obviously, because we, we have workshops on this and stuff like this, I've started having, you know how sometimes you've got to plant an idea first and create an idea trap. And once you have that idea trap, you start thinking, oh, I could add this in, I could add this in. So yeah. writing the first pass of the book almost was creating the idea trap. It was enough to get the keynote out of me and I created a keynote around it and I did that. And then now that I have that idea trap, I start seeing things I want to add. I think it could probably be 80 pages and then I'll probably work with my publisher and do a second version of it. But for now, this is a free ebook. 
What's and the website the again? Like Storyseller.co.za. That's the South African uh, country domain. Right there. Here we go. If you go to getrich.af, that has links to all my books and it has links to my companies and my website and our speaking program and everything. Well, and I also just like make that my URL is getrich.af. <laughs> is it seriously that? Getrich.af? Yes, which is quite funny. I was doing a talk in Saudi Arabia and they were like, why do you have Afghanistan <laughs> as, your, as your thing? And I was like, oh, <laughs> yes, okay, that is a thing. So this is it's actually a tip I often give to to speakers. So if my, my website is richmolholland.com, but I created getrich.af because one, people find it difficult to spell your name. And two, this is a separate site and it uses one of those link farms. So yeah. often it's easier just to share a quick link. If I'm on somebody's show like yours, if I can share a quick link that has everything else in it, then I don't have to give my company is here and my personal is here and my Twitter is this, my LinkedIn is yeah. this. This small link just goes to a tap.bio account and there are other ones like Linktree, I like tap.bio. Yeah. And then it just has basically a list of links and you can find out you know, everything you wanted to know about Richard Mulholland but didn't know who to ask. <laughs> <laughs> that is so awesome, man. So, so what's your, uh, who is your ideal client? So it depends on the context, obviously, like uh, within Missing Link, we, we, we worked, the story seller program is to try and help entrepreneurs find out the story their business should use to, to sell better. So that's, and how to use it better for sales presentations. So with entrepreneurs and stuff like that, that's often a big part of it. For the program I'm working on right now is a story to stage program and working with people who understand that they've got an idea inside their head and they want to take advantages of all the stages that are out there. And I believe that everyone should be paid to speak. You either get paid for a talk or you get paid from a talk. So, and you earn six figures for your talk, but you earn seven figures from your talk. And how do you craft and structure your talk in such a way that people want to listen? But then more importantly is how to turn that talk into an, a speaking engine that generates work and, and, and amplifies authority and your own authority. Because I think most speakers are really bad at getting that right. They know how to write a good talk, but they don't understand that a talk is a product that still has to be marketed and grown and built on and how to build a better speaking engine. So right now, my, my day job, uh, we obviously have people running the different divisions of the business, is working with the speakers in a story to stage program, helping them actually kickstart. And I want to move more from being a speaker to myself, myself to actually help other entrepreneurs and, and, and thought leaders find their voice and lead loud. Now, are you dealing with people all over the world or just in or at the moment on the program? So the, the current the program is a perpetual program. We've got uh, people from Australia, Ireland, Dubai, Nigeria, South Africa, Canada, Mexico. So we've got like a, a fair mix. Uh, scheduling the calls quite difficult, uh, to be honest. Wow. Yeah. But um, yes. Everyone should get paid to speak. You either get paid to speak or get paid from speaking. That's awesome, dude. Thank you. Let, let me ask you this. What what is the what do you think? And this this goes to everyone, not just entrepreneurs. What do you think holds most people back? And by the way, I ask this question of every guest. The number one answer is fear. So you have to do better than that. 
What what do you think holds most people back in life from success, happiness, freedom? Well, so first of all, it's not defining what happens. So hold you. So can I push you back a little bit on the question? Yeah. So what is what is the the measurement of success here? Because some people would look at me and say, why is he settled and unsuccessful? But I look at somebody else working late, never seeing their family and think they're unsuccessful. They're, they're three times wealthier than I am. But, but uh, like I don't measure my success on their criteria. So the first thing is that people aren't intentional about what success looks like. See all those board games there. If I want to teach you to play any of those games, right? Yep. any game, if I want to teach you, the first thing I have to do is teach you what the victory condition is. What does winning look like? So what is you, the victory condition? And then we've got to define what your path to victory is. Now, most people go through life not having defined what their victory condition is. So they don't know. They just they confuse moving forwards with moving towards. But, vic, but success is about moving towards something, not just moving forwards. Being mildly better at yesterday and something that doesn't actually matter to you, that's not success. That's just growth. That's just, you know, of course we're going to go through that. It's evolution. We're evolving as humans. And I think there has to be something more. There has to be a, a victory condition. So I think what's holding most people back from being success is they've never actually decided what success looks like. <laughs> I, I have a list of 100 things I want to achieve before I die. One of them was to be able to solve a Rubik's Cube. And one of them was to build a $100 million business. Now, here's the thing. When I die, both of those are only worth one point out of 100. So I'm going to rate my life on the success criteria that I get. So that might be an 88. So the $100 million business is up there with Solve a Rubik's Cube, which, by the way, I can now do. And so I've got a bunch of things that I want to try and achieve. And I've plotted my life with intention. And every year I have a theme. So I mentioned a few times that it's my birthday on uh, Friday. And as a family, I want my kids and my wife and I to be intentional about what we do. So on the night of our birthday, when our, our broader family has gone home, the, whoever's birthday it is sits down and, and you know, we, we choose their dinner. And then we decide what is going to make this year successful. So this year is the year of something. And then every single day of my life, I write a new day's resolution. So what will make today a success? And what is my new day's resolution for today? And that's usually working on a theme that will help me get towards something. And so every year of my life is, is a step towards making me a better version of the person that I want to be. The reason most people aren't successful is because they've not decided what winning looks like. And screw anybody else telling you what their version of success is. They don't get a vote. That, that line, comparison is the thief of joy, is so true. Nobody else gets to be the authority on your success. You get to define what that looks like. But you must be honest and you should push yourself. I, I confused comfort with success a few years ago. And I didn't realize that I was depressed because I wasn't growing and evolving. Now I've put myself some more meaningful targets and I'm working towards things. But the one thing I want to say to people, I said one of the one of the things was I wanted to take my wife to Iceland in in summer because we love Iceland. And I often show this in a photograph and a talk I give and people come up and say, oh, that's amazing. Iceland is on my bucket list. And I say, cool, show me. And he's like, what? So show me, show me your bucket list. And well, I mean, it's in my head. And that's everyone. We have these bucket lists which are made up things in your head. It doesn't count. Write it down. If you don't have a list of 100 things written down, start. That's your homework for tomorrow. Like, just write down five things, five things by the end of today that you think that I want to make these a start of my 100 list. If nothing else, if that's the only thing I got out of you today, that is your victory condition. 
to write down just five things I want to achieve and spread them. Make it a family goal, a personal goal, a community goal, a travel goal, you know, a business goal. And just one of those things that's big enough to make it like a life goal and then start expanding and then adding more categories. It'll take you six months to a year to write the whole hundred, but that's okay. Just start. And then, then I will give you a better answer to what will help you uh, keep you out of success. But right now it's that you don't know what success looks like. I have done over 300 interviews of celebrities and entrepreneurs and I'm going to say this, <clears throat> that is the best answer I've ever received. Uh, and you, you, you painted the picture, you painted the picture so well for me to hear you say, it just made sense all of a sudden, like, oh my God, if I'm going to sit down and play a game of chess with you and you've never played, I have to explain to you what the what the end result is going to look like, what it ha what has to happen for this exchange to occur. Nobody has ever said anything like that. I am telling you that is, look, look at the, look at the comments. That is what I'm missing in my life. My wife said best answer ever. And she put a period after each. So I think she really meant it. <laughs> Dude, that is you know, it's, I can't play a game with you if I don't know how to win. And you can't even learn the rules. That's what's more important. If you try to teach somebody the rules to the game without knowing what victory looks like, they don't have anything to measure it against. You're just telling them these random instructions. It's what I say to companies. They write this vision statement and mission statement, and they, they, they tell people how to act in their business, but they don't explain to people what the condition of victory looks like. Thank you, well done. And, and another thing for me that matters as well is, and for those of you who, who are in position to put this in place in your business, this isn't your BHAG. Your victory condition isn't your 10-year goal. Sometimes it's just your victory condition. We do one every single year for spring day. Spring day in South Africa is the 1st of September. So we have a spring day goal. Next week on the 20th, uh, Sam flies down, myself, Justin, and Sam meet, and we define the victory conditions for next year. The first one will trigger off uh, at the end of our financial year, which is February. And then that gets us gaining momentum. And then the, the victory condition for the end of the year will be in 1st of September. And it's never money. It's never money. It's always, I'm going to come to that in a second, Chadwick. It's never money that should be your victory condition. Money should be the byproduct of your victory condition. Because yeah. we have done this, the money will happen. If money is your victory condition, then what happens is you get confused because the answer is always uh, do more uh, or sell more or market better. That's the only way you're going to make more money. So it has to be something more meaningful. It might be build a better CRM system, rethink the way that we sell. So and this is very much more for a business point of view. Now to Chadwick's problem, the biggest thing that gets in the way of your victory condition is uh, not letting other people get involved in it. People keep it to themselves. I share our victory conditions everywhere, and I make sure that, let's say from a business point of view, that everybody in our business knows what our current victory condition is. What are we working towards, and what is the goal we want to create in our business? And the criteria, the sentence is this. If at the end of this year, if by the 1st of September 2021, we have not achieved X, we have failed. And X is what it is. And it's, it's binary. It's like you either finished the race or you didn't finish the race. Some years we're like, no, we didn't make it this year. That's okay, because it's got to feel like something you're working towards. But what it means is we get to have the victory along the way. And then when I have these new day uh, resolutions, my system is very simple. 
I think we don't bake enough failure into our life. So we don't understand that that's as part of our algorithm. So I realized that New Year's resolutions are broken because if you said, I want to stop smoking, and then you have a cigarette after a week, you think, oh, well, I've, I've failed. But actually, it's only payable on the 31st of December. So what happens if you turn around and you change your mindset? So my system is relatively easy every single week, and I'm going to show, show you how it looks just so you can see I'm not making this up. Every single week, I uh, in the morning, I list my victory condition for the day. At the end of the day or when I wake up the following morning, I mark it with a V or a poo emoji. At the end of the week, if I have five Vs, then the week is a win. If at the end of the month, I have three uh, week wins, the month is a win. And if at the end of the year, I have 11 month wins, the year is a win. So wow. that's how I map in. And it allows for a lot of failure. And it's when my room opens, I'll show you. But it's, it's about saying, well, if this is what I'm trying to achieve in the end of the year, that's going to happen with a bunch of little micro, skip, uh, micro steps. And the best thing is, on five out of on on average five out of seven mornings I wake up having won the day before, achieved a victory condition. So I wake up every morning a winner. And it sounds so cheesy and stupid when I say it like that, but I promise you, it makes a difference. I wake up in the morning, I look, I mark, I put a little V thing, like yes. And when I don't win, it's by choice. I know what I still have to do today, but I know I've got a bit of failure time baked in. So maybe I won't make this one, but it means I'll have to be stricter late in the week. That's okay. Allow, understand, choose to fail when it matters. Wow. 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 I, I don't even know what else to say, but wow. Where is the best place for everyone to follow you on social media? Where are you most active? I don't want anyone to follow me. I would like people to engage with me. And if you want to engage with me, I would suggest LinkedIn is a great place. I enjoy chatting and engaging there. Uh, I, Twitter tends to be the least value engagement. Then I'll chat about anything random. It's the most random is where I might share a meme. And I'm trying to get more involved in uh, in uh, Instagram and to be a little bit more intentional about how I utilize Instagram as a tool. But for now, if you want to get, learn a bit more about myself and my family and, and what matters to me and my hobbies and passions, Instagram would be a good place to go. It's okay. possibly the least interactive, but I'm trying to use stories better and share more thinking and ideas and be more intentional about it. Is that is or that business insights? Is that all at getrich.af? Getrich.af will give you links to all of those where you can go and find it. What I would love you to do though is if you do reach out, please let me know and just um, let me know that uh, Ken was the connection. It would be great. I would like to map those out. I use Rome Research for everything, and I like to map how I met people and then. If ever Ken and I have a chat another time in the future, it'd be amazing just to tell him the relationships that I've built uh, because we engaged. And, uh, you know, uh, often I don't think sometimes sometimes people like Ken don't get to realize the impact that they have on their guests' lives and and the kind of relationships they they, they fire start. And, uh, yeah, so I'd love to be able to connect those dots from one day. Dude, that's so awesome. I, and and we are like I, I, we're we're writing a book together. I, I, I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> Um, so, so <laughs> I have two books that came, one came out. Yeah. Anyway, we need to do, we need to do something together, but Rich. And Jazz and I are hosting you and Joel for dinner. Hey, yeah. We're, Hey, we'll, we'll book the flight now, but I, 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 I want to, um, I want to say thank you first. Like I, I I'm, I, I can't, I'm going to go back. I'm going to have my girl take some clips out of, out of this, man, there were some sound bites in, in this interview that are life changing for people. Seriously. I, I think you just, you. you just impacted some lives, man. So 
Um, Rich, thank you so much for being on. I, 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 I'm blown away. I literally am. This has been an unbelievable interview. So thank you. Thank I'm, you so much for having me and for giving me the opportunity. And, and thanks and everybody for engaging. We can, we can also get on Amazon live. I'm an Amazon influencer. We can get on doing Amazon live and sell some of your shit on there. <laughs> that would be incredible. Yeah. I love, I love doing that. I'm, I'm the terribly uh, best kept secrets. Nobody, I need more people in the U S to read my books. <laughs> Do you have, you have stuff on, on Amazon, right? Legacide and boredom Slayer are both on Amazon. Okay, dude. Thank you so much, everybody in the comments. You can go back and and we're on we're on five Facebook pages, LinkedIn, two YouTube channels, Twitter, and Periscope right now live. So we're uh, we're all over the place. So you can go back and check out um, check out the the comments and stuff. So hang with me, Rich. I'm going to end the in, the the live stream here. I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. I appreciate you, man. You rock. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Stay with me, Rich. Don't hang up on me.